Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers? The Home Depot has an idea. Let mom's green thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to bring out the most in her patios, walkways, and gardens. Right now, get Vigoro Potting Soil just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants, indoors and outside. Shop our wide selection online and pick up your order in-store and give mom the gift of a beautiful garden. Get Vigoro Potting Soil just $8.97 at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. See homedepot.com slash delivery for details. On May 10th, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. I stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters May 10th. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Hello, I'm Adam Conover, and welcome to the Earwolf Presents podcast, featuring an episode of my show, Factually. Each week, you'll get a special episode from the Earwolf universe of podcasts, or even something completely brand new. And today, you'll hear an episode of my show, Factually. This episode is called Four Lost Cities, and it's my interview with journalist Annalee Newitz. On the show, we don't just talk about history, we talk to experts from all around the world of human knowledge about fascinating topics like insects, sweat, political movements, philosophy, you name it. If you're a curious person who loves to learn, then you can check out more episodes of my show, Factually, wherever you listen to podcasts. And now, please enjoy Four Lost Cities, my interview with Annalee Newitz. I don't know the truth! Welcome to Factually. I'm Adam Conover. Let's talk about Pompeii. Remember Pompeii? You might have heard about it in your sixth grade global studies class like I did. If you didn't, I'll refresh your memory. Pompeii is a Roman city south of Naples in Italy. And in the year 79 AD, almost 2,000 years ago, the volcano Vesuvius went, in what I think is the correct geological term, uh, kablooey, an ash rained down on the entire city, boiling hot ash. And this ash, while it did destroy Pompeii, it also more or less preserved the city in layers and layers of ash until a surveying engineer rediscovered it in 1748 and found the entire city preserved. I'm talking the shells of human bodies, entire buildings, wall art, even graffiti, all of it preserved under ash. Now, what happened to Pompeii was a disaster, but it was also really cool, right? I mean, come on. Uh, Pompeii is awesome. What is it about it that pulls us to it so much? What is it about ruins in general that draws us in? I mean, come on, admit it. You love ruins. I love ruins. We all love ruins. I don't care whether it's Stonehenge, the Parthenon, or an abandoned old factory in your hometown. When you see that shit, you stop and take a photo and you marvel at it, don't you? Why is that? Why are we so drawn to them? Well, here's what I think. I think exactly the same way that that ash was a shell over those human bodies. We could see the shape of the human underneath in the shape of the ash covering them. Ruins are the shells of human civilization. And by looking at them, we can imagine 
and learn about the civilization that used to exist. We can picture the ghosts of previous humans walking around within them. And that's incredibly powerful, especially when we're talking about the ruins of cities. See, there is no more important innovation or unit of organization in the history of civilization than the city. In fact, the history of human civilization is in many ways simply the history of human cities. Just like ants build anthills, on some level, humans are fundamentally city builders. Cities are our most profound social technology, and they're the densest collections of information about our history. In them, we can see how our spiritual, social, political, and economic lives overlap. I mean, it's fucking nuts. I really cannot overstate the extent to which to understand human cities is to understand human civilization. But of course, the question of what cities we choose to study and how we choose to study them is distorted through the lens of which culture we come from. Because think about it, the story of humanity is the story of all of our cities, right? But the narrative that we've often chosen when we study history is to just focus on a few of the cities. Let's look at just one example that we're going to discuss more with our guest today. Take Cahokia, for instance. Have you heard of Cahokia? I'd wager you haven't. I'd wager that same sixth grade global studies class that taught you all about Pompeii might have skipped it. I myself did not know this city existed until just a few years ago. It's a city that was larger than London around the year 1250, so incredibly massive in historical terms. And it also contains gigantic earthworks, huge mounds that you could compare to the pyramids in Egypt. I mean, this is pretty significant stuff historically. Oh, and by the way, Cahokia was located in Missouri. That's right, in North America, this enormous, organized, sophisticated world historical city was built and populated by the indigenous people who lived in North America prior to European colonization. And by the way, it wasn't a secret. When the colonists arrived, they were like, holy shit, a really big city was here. But for some reason, they left it out of the history books. We don't teach the story of Cahokia in our middle school global studies classes. Why not? Instead, the cities that we've been taught to value and consider are the ones more like Pompeii. Well, you know what? I think that's bullshit. When we neglect to tell the story of all of our cities, we neglect the fundamental history of ourselves as human beings. We dismiss the accumulated knowledge of humanity, which in an age of societal disruption and ongoing ecological catastrophe seems like a bad idea to me. So let's rectify that in today's episode. Here today to talk about ancient cities, our guest is Annalie Newitz, a contributor at the New York Times opinion page and most recently the author of Four Lost Cities, A Secret History of the Urban Age. Please welcome Annalie Newitz. Annalie, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me on. The book is called Four Lost Cities. It's an extremely appealing title for a book, I have to say. Like, there's nothing there's nothing I like more than a lost city. I mean, you're imagining, you know, ruins covered in vines, but there's like maybe a magic object hidden inside the city somewhere. I grew up with very, you know, in a certain period of fantasy literature, I apologize. But, <laughs> but th these are real. Alien these technology. are real cities. That's right. These are real cities. And when I first started working on the book, people kept saying, oh, like Atlantis? And I was like, <laughs> no, like Angkor. <laughs> Actual cities <laughs> that, really, that really rose up and kind of got abandoned later on. Well, tell me about them and tell me how you came to write the book. 
So I had been uh, working on a book about um, the end of the world. And I got in the process of doing that book, um, I got really interested in the idea of how cities were kind of battle suits for um, surviving all kinds of shifts in the environment Hmm. and uh, different kinds of transformations that civilization goes through. And so I thought, all right, instead of trying to do my next book about, you know, four million years of history, which is the last one. I was like, why don't I do something a little smaller and a little more focused and look at how cities survive and how they represent, um, you know, the work of of millions of people oftentimes uh, surviving together. So they're really these kinds of amazing entities of cooperation. Of course, they're full of Mm. conflict as well. So I... There was a long period where I thought I was going to write about 12 cities, and then I had a whole bunch more stuff. And finally, I settled on the four cities in the book, um, which are separated by thousands of years. Um, Çatalhöyük, which is an ancient city in Turkey. Uh, Pompeii, which we've all heard the story of. You've seen the action film, so you know what happened. Yeah, Um, yeah, I saw the people covered in my sixth grade history class and the people covered in ash, which is like... Really, the only thing we learned is that is there are people frozen in place and with, with the ash. It's very cool. And now we'll do the next chapter. Uh, yeah, it's super creepy. Um, and that was actually a really fun one to do. Um, and then the other two cities are Angkor, which was um, the capital of the Khmer Empire in Cambodia. Mm. Um, and uh, uh, Cahokia, which is an indigenous American city uh, outside St. Louis, which um, is very close to my heart. I've visited several times and. Uh, that's sort of the that's sort of the place where it started, actually, was with Cahokia. Um, and then I got to travel to these other cities as well. Yeah, Cahokia is so fascinating. We actually did a little segment on it on one of our animated episodes of Adam Ruins Everything, um, just about how this is not something that many people uh, are taught about that existed in North America. You know, the image that we have of of Native Americans, of of American Indians is uh, you know, uh, just a couple of people in the woods, just like running around. You know what I mean? Like very mm-hmm. hunter gatherer kind of stuff. And we're we're not uh, taught that. Yeah, there were actual cities in North America. I mean, you know, maybe you hear about the ones in South America, but it's wild stuff. But before we get to that, I want to get to that. Yeah. Uh, let's just talk a little. I just want to expand on that point about cities being like battle suits. That's really fascinating. I mean, cities are like the. Oh. oh Studying cities to study cities is to study civilization in a way, right? Um, but how do they how do they work as battle suits? Well, they are the kind of culmination of the work of often generations and generations of people trying to create an environment that's more comfortable for humans. Mm-hmm. So it's partly a battle suit in the sense that it's um, hardened against the environment. Um, but it's also something that is peaceful in a lot of ways. Um, cities really arise from farming. Um, they don't arise from war. The, I know there's been a whole debate in the urban studies community about this, but I think at this point, most uh, archaeologists and historians would agree that that cities are coming out of people simply wanting to work together uh, or figuring out ways to work together to feed themselves um, and to entertain themselves. Um, and so the battle suit is you have to imagine like, um, you know, like a mecha suit from an anime where mm-hmm. like it's not just for like fighting monsters. It's also for like playing games and like <laughs> learning how to um, be a grown up and, you know, 
how to do all kinds of other um, amazing things in the environment that you can't do if you're just a squishy little biological organism. <laughs> um, so it's like it's a way of of getting together with all your Power Rangers friends and like building something bigger because all of you are are together. And and again, this is the power of basically collective work and collective mm-hmm. action. You know, people um, saying, all right, you know, if we have a hundred of us, we can build a really great reservoir and then we can have water all year round. How about that? Um, not something you could do by yourself or just with a little tiny family group. Um, and so that I think is what makes cities such a um, a source of fascination for us because they do represent the work of so many people. There, there's something that transcends individual human experience, mm-hmm. and yet they're so human. You know, they're they're made by people, um, and they do travel through time because you build things in cities hoping that they last for hundreds of years. And I think that's why um, the story of Notre Dame in Paris burning was so affecting for people all yeah. over the world was because. This was something that was built by generations and generations and generations of people living in the area. And it it felt like a living embodiment of history. And at their best, that is what cities are. They remind us of our connections to the past. Um, They are kind of monuments to human ingenuity. And on top of all that, they're really fun. And that's Mm. something I I feel like people forget when they, they talk about the history of cities and you know, you think, oh, it's great monuments and it's, you know, it's things like Notre Dame. But like, why do people go to Notre Dame? Because it's beautiful and you can hear people singing really badass songs in there, right? It sounds really cool. And that's one of the main reasons that people came to cities. One of the things I found in my research over and over was the attraction of the city was parties. You know, you could go there, (laughs) you had so many people, so many artisans, so many musicians, Um, So many cool plazas that, you know, hundreds of people had worked over hundreds of years to build and just have a great time, you know. So they're both, you know, places where we work, places where we survive the environment together and also places where we just have giant barbecues or have amazing (laughs) dances um, and, you know, just get drunk or. Yeah. Wow, you're really you're really encapsulating why I fell in love with New York City when I moved there in my twenties, and and I don't mean to go on do my whole ah, I love New York, you know, memoir article that like everyone's read a thousand times. <laughs> but feel free because New York <laughs> is a great city. <laughs> well, yeah, it is. It is absolutely. But I had that sense of, uh, you know, I grew up uh, sort of out in the country on Long Island. It was a much more natural world kind of place. And I often saw human civilization as being an ugly thing. You know, growing up in the suburbs, I lived near the forest. And I could go on a hike in the forest and say, oh, this is a beautiful place. It's a beautiful environment. And then like, you know, this is a parking lot with a supermarket like this is ugly, you know. Mm-hmm. And I remember when I moved to New York feeling like, well, this is the most unnatural place. Uh, you know, this is the most human place, the the least you know, natural world, worldly place. And yet it is so beautiful and fascinating. And there's so much going on here. And it almost feels like this is humanity's natural environment in a way. You know what I mean? Like this is the environment that we create for ourselves. And we're like, let's just go hog wild and tear down every single tree and dam every river and build our shit. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. And we and we just go to town and it's all dense and on top of each other. And as you said, New York has the has the advantage of being an old yet a young city, only a few hundred years old. So you're you're like, oh, I uh, 
people you the people who built it just before you are kind of visible to you like their names are on the buildings and they're intelligible to you it's not incredibly old and you have this sense of like my god millions of people working together without actually purposefully coordinating with each other most of the time created this incredibly vibrant incredibly complex place that is almost like infinitely deep you know like the reason people fall in love with new york is you can spend a whole lifetime of understanding different parts of it understanding it in different aspects uh, and so like, that's why I said at the beginning of this, like, man, in so some ways you start thinking about cities, you're like, that is human civilization. And the more we study them, like that, that right. That like, if you're an alien, come to earth, you're like, what the fuck is this? Like, what is this city? This is the part I need to understand. <laughs> yeah. You got stuff in books, but like, what's going on here? Um, yeah, okay. no, it's really true. I can't wait to see the science fiction story where that is what the aliens are worried about. Like, <laughs> why did you make these cities? Cause they are, they're quite improbable when you think about it. You know, mm -hmm. people spent you know, probably, I mean, he, Homo sapiens and then our immediate ancestors spent about a million years basically roving the earth, right? And then suddenly, about 10,000 years ago, suddenly we decide, let's build these dirty, stinky, noisy warrens of disease and just hang out there. <laughs> Why? Why did we do that? Um, that's like one of the mysteries that I kind of wanted to get at in this book. Like, what what were we thinking? And one of the interesting things I was reading recently, and then let's talk about a specific city. But okay. humans have also had always a, always had a uh, an ambivalent feeling to some degree about cities. Like the thing that was uh, pointed out to me uh, was that Babylon, the idea of Babylon, one of the very first cities, is like you know a a byword for decadence and depravity. Uh, you know, goodbye, Babylon. I'm putting Babylon behind me. That sort of thing. in the in the Bible, it's often a horrible place. Um, mm -hmm. And there's like stretching back. I mean, talk about the culture war, the rural urban culture war we have in America today. It's like in the goddamn Bible. There's, there's a rural urban culture war. Um, mm -hmm. And so it also seems that as soon as people started collecting in these places, there was a little bit of ambivalence of other people going like, whoa, that's weird. That's a weird place. There's like a whole lot. People are having sex there. And they're mm -hmm. and they're and money is changing hands. What's going on? You know, we're partying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I mean, I think that's definitely true. And um, there's a couple things that I want to say about that. One is I think that cities are looked at ha have always been seen as these sources of decadence and anxiety, partly because of the partying and the sex, but also because they are places that people immigrate to. Cities mm -hmm. have, as far as we can tell, um, using the tools that we have now, it seems like even the oldest cities had immigrant neighborhoods. Um, they had people coming to them from far away and mixing with people who were who were more local. Um, and I think that that is what makes cities so wonderful. And it's also what I think causes a lot of fear because it's it's encounters with the unknown with uh, mm. cultures you've never seen before in an intimate way, right? It's not like we're just like saying hi on the road, you know, like, bye-bye, you know, you're gone now. It's like, this is your neighbor. This is your person who's helping you build a street. These are people you have to depend on and trust um, to like not let their wall fall in on your kitchen or whatever. Um, and that creates a lot of ambivalence, I think. Um, and so the other thing I, I would say is that um, about a specific city, um, Chitalhoyuk, which I talk about in the book, um, it was a Neolithic city. It was really going strong about 9,000 years ago, and they were having big bonfires and hanging out. Um, 
And after that city is abandoned, and it takes a while. I mean, people live in the city for like almost 2,000 years. Um, And once they've finally left and it's become kind of a monument and kind of a graveyard, people don't build other cities. It seems Mm. as if the people who lived there went back to village life, um, you know, were they were still farming, they were still settled, they weren't nomads. Um, but it appears there were about two or 3,000 years in there where people kind of rejected urban life um, wholesale. There were other large settlements like Chitalhoyuk, but they were very rare. And then we see cities reemerge um, during kind of the classic Mesopotamian era where you see Ur and you have like the ziggurats and all the <laughs> cool shit like that. Um, but uh, it does seem like People, you know, humans almost took a different path. Basically, we started cities, kind of backed off from it and then went back and just went all in on it. You know, just really uh, went to the the big grand cities that we think of now when we yeah. think of what is a city. Well, tell me more about Chateauhyuk. Where does it uh, where where was it? And uh, is this one of the first uh, this is very early. Is this one of the very first cities we know about? Yeah. And in fact, uh, I should say not everyone even calls it a city. Um, I'm calling it a city in the book because it's kind of the city of its day. This is located in central Turkey. Um, as I said, it was Neolithic, which means it it really starts um, happening in what is the Stone Age. Basically, people are only using stone tools. Um, they haven't even invented ceramics yet. Um, they're not yet um, really uh, eating dairy. It's a really early period in human history. Uh, and so people are farming and they start build, building the city um, on the Konya Plain, which is a very nice fertile area, good for grazing animals, good for growing stuff. Um, and the city doesn't look anything like modern cities. So um, it's it's built from uh, mud brick, unfired, so it, it crumbles really easily. Mm. Uh, and over the years, over the, the you know, really 1,500, 2,000 years that people are living there, as, as each successive house crumbles, it forms a hill. And so wow. eventually, the city is on a hill of city. <laughs> wow. So archaeologists digging down into this hill are just finding nothing but city. And the houses are all squished up against each other. So it's a little, it's a bit reminiscent of kind of Pueblo architecture here in the United States, uh, but it's, it's much, it, it's not um, multi-story really. It's all kind of one level. And then sidewalks are on the roof. People huh. have doors in their roofs um, and they do a lot of work on the roof. Um, you know, people, you know, do a lot of um, cooking on the roof. They sleep on the roof during the warmer months and then they go down into their house for coziness. Uh, they have a hearth down there. Um, and they also uh, bury their dead under the floors, uh, wow. under the areas where they sleep in the house. And so the wow. home at Chitalhoyuk to me is super interesting because it's this kind of amalgamation of spiritual practice and then just like pragmatic everyday stuff. Like this is where we're cooking and this is where we're making our clothes. Um, and so it's at its height, there were maybe 5,000 people living there, which Sounds teeny, yeah. but when you think about the fact that every other place where people live, like villages, 200 people was really the maximum population yeah. in those places. So this, if you came upon Chitalhoyuk, um, you know, and you were just a typical person from a village, it would look like Manhattan to you. You'd be like, holy crap, there's yeah. so many people. Um, but uh, as I said, it's this kind of proto-city, so it 
maybe it felt to people like a bunch of villages just really close together. There was no central plaza. There was no commerce. Uh, there was no written language that we can recognize. Um, and so it was, it, and it was felt very decentralized to the archaeologists who have, have examined it over the years. And so it's, it's really a city in the making. It's, it's big and, and densely packed, um, but it doesn't seem from the architecture to have had like a ruler. Like nobody has a big fancy castle. Huh. Everybody just has these kind of, you know, one, two, three bedroom places squished up against their neighbor's places. Um, and, you know, some people have like more fancy stuff on the walls, um, mm-hmm. but it's not clear that that correlates to wealth or or that they even had a, a, an idea of wealth. And so it's a super, super interesting um, experiment in urbanism, this really urban, ex- this really early experiment. Yeah. Um, and then, like I said, after the place is abandoned and we don't know why, like there wasn't a big war, there wasn't a big flood. Um, you know, there were some climate changes. There was a drought, but the city seems to have survived that uh, intact. It doesn't mm. seem like that that was uh, a big problem for them. Um, and uh, but eventually they do leave and they return to village life on the Konya Plain around the city and the city crumbles away and becomes kind of a graveyard. And wow. people continue to use it as a graveyard for thousands of years. They find uh, graves from like classical antiquity, you know, so it's, it's much quite, later. Like, there's, there's Roman graves there basically. Wow. Um, yeah. So the Romans are like, wow, check this shit out. You know, it's like an ancient city. Let's bury our dead there. Um, and uh, I mean, that's a rough translation from the Latin. Um, and, uh, and so it's, it's, uh, it, it kind of becomes a monument and then much, much later in the 19, uh, early 1960s, uh, Westerners start excavating uh, systematically and, and looking at the city. But before it was abandoned, it was populated for, for 2000 years. Is that what you said? Yeah, about 1500, 2000 years, depending on kind of how you look at it. But yeah, it's it's definitely and it's a really it's a going concern for about a thousand years. And when I say going concern, I mean, it's quite populated. It's like just, you know, it's at its height. Yeah, if you will. Yeah. But uh, I mean, you said 5000 people. We don't think of that as that much. But 2000 years strikes me as an incredibly long time for a city to be in one place. There's very few cities right? that are present today that have had the same name or, or have been around for that long. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's an enormously long amount of time. Yeah, they it, I mean, by all measures, it was a very successful city. Yeah, a uh, very successful urban experiment or mega settlement or whatever term you want to use for it. Um, people uh, felt very attached to the land. And I think what's interesting, if you're looking at the history of cities, is that Chitalhuyuk is one of the first places where we can see people growing an attachment to place and growing mm-hmm. an attachment to to staying in one place. Because this is also a city that exists at the moment when human beings are really starting to settle down into an agrarian life where they live in one place year round, mm-hmm. which is a huge cultural shock and dislocation for homo sapiens. Like we've been a, a wandering species up yeah. until that point. Um, and I just have to imagine it would have been, it would have felt like going through the internet age or something like uh-huh. that, you know, just such a huge shift to be like, wait, we're just going to stay here. We're not going to go move around with the seasons. We're just going to 
stay in one place and and grow our food and and hope that the food grows and like build a permanent house like that is nuts why are you doing that um and it worked and i think that because it worked in that in chatalhuyuk people were very attached to it and they were like okay we're going to stay here like this is where our ancestors were their bones are in the floor like we know this place you know seri- but i think honey that we that can't was- move my yeah, bones that- are in the floor we can't move Actually, the great thing at Chital, and this is not just at Chitalhoyuk, but lots of Neolithic cities um, or Neolithic settlements, people would um, excavate the bones of their dead and um, take out the skulls and plaster them and kind of put them up as, um, you know, we assume it was kind of a way of honoring ancestors, Mm -hmm. but they would also trade them back and forth. And so when um, archaeologists are excavating there, they'll find like, a person buried in the floor with someone else's skull or maybe like three or four skulls. And it's just like, you know, collect them all. We don't know <laughs> um, what that meant, but uh, it definitely seems like that the, that the kind of symbolic feeling of putting down roots um, or, you know, yeah. building your city with the bones of your ancestors, that that was part of this process of humans getting used to the idea of, of being in one place and being okay with that, you know? Now, we were just talking in, we just interviewed Rutger Bregman uh, the other week, and we talked about the idea of the agriculture trap, um, the yes. the idea that that the transition to agriculture was actually not good for humanity, that it allowed us to <laughs> vastly expand our population, but the ex- at the expense of our lifespan and our quality of life and our, our dental health and all these things. Uh, it's an idea I've read in a couple different places, but talking to you now, mm-hmm. it also strikes me like, well... It's true. We would not have cities or any of these, uh, you know, any of the things they bring. I mean, cities come from agriculture. uh, Do they not? Talk about that a little bit. So this is, again, a longstanding debate. um, And as you've already covered, like the question about, like, was agriculture a big mistake? And all all of those things are, are part of that debate. But yes, cities cannot exist without agriculture. And the chicken or egg question for many urban archaeologists is which came first, city or agriculture? And it looks like basically the answer is yes, they came together and that you um, don't really see a lot of systematic farming or a lot of systematic city building without, you know, without the, the package, you know, farms and cities coming together. And so part of that is because, as we were talking about, you, if you're living in a settled environment and you're staying there all year round, you've got to have food. Uh, you've got to figure out a way to um, make it through the winter and and that kind of thing. So it seems like early cities, people were um, mostly settled and then some portion of the population may have, have gone or, um, you know, seasonally moved with herds or may have, they may have had farms that were somewhat distant from the city. So people may have had to travel to get to the farms um, this is a question with actually a lot of these ancient cities is where the heck were these farms? Yeah. Um, because we don't always find them in the archaeological record. But uh, yeah, it's, you know, one of the best ways that I've seen it described is um, terraforming, that this is a, an early example of humans terraforming. Mm. We're remaking the earth in in our own uh, image. Um, and so we're uh, oftentimes... Early farms, you know, are created by, um, you know, clear cutting and burning. Um, so you just burn a whole area and then plant your own um, trees or, or other or grains or whatever you're growing. 
Um, and then, of course, cities are like an, a human environment, too. You know, we build our little boxes that we live in. We have our like party stadiums, whatever we decide to build. Um, and so you have to always think when you think of a city, um, even a modern city, you always have to think of it as part of a package with farms. So mm. where is the food coming from? Um, and where, you know, where are the resources coming from? Um, and that's, um, you know, part of the urban story is, is how do you have a densely populated area that is also being fed and that also has access to resources like wood or clay or yeah. other items that you need to, um, you know, make, uh, clothing and tools and roads. And, uh, so some of the other cities in my book, like Angkor, um, which is in Southeast Asia, um, one of their big issues is how to get stone into the downtown area where they're building their temples and building um, uh, all kinds of places for, you know, basically fancy stuff, you know, building temples, building um, public monuments. Um, and so they build these elaborate systems of canals. Well, slaves build them, mostly um, <laughs> debt slaves. Um in order to bring rock into downtown Angkor from distant areas. Um, and so this is, again, that's the story of the city. The city doesn't exist without this uh, rock that's been quarried from, from distant regions. And so, um, yeah, a city is a, uh, a place for consuming mass quantities. And so you have to look <laughs> for where the quantities are being produced to yeah. understand the city. There's also seems to be this degree to which like how we talk about humans making these decisions. Uh, sometimes we say, well, they decided they wanted to do this so that they, you know, so they, they could do a, B and C and they decided to put down roots. Right. But mm -hmm. assuming there isn't a big emperor and you say there isn't in this case, well, there isn't one person deciding to do that. There's like 5,000 people just sort of individually going, Oh, I think I'm going to do this this year or whatever. And, and sometimes I think of cities as being almost like, like lakes in that, you know, a lake is just like, hey, you know, water just runs downhill. And after a while, it collects somewhere. A lake is just a, a depression where water collects on its way to the sea, you know, because like the rivers happen to to come mm -hmm. in this way. And sometimes like uh, this is the sort of view you get when you're like, you know, flying over a city. You're like, why is this city right here? And you're like, did people just sort of collect here? Because this is this is where the heart, the natural harbor was. So this is where, you know, people you know, this is where the shipping happened and people sprung up around that. Um, it's difficult to know, like, the, when you look at humans on this scale, sometimes there's that human agency of, oh, we decided to start agriculture and build cities. And then sometimes you're like, well, no, we just, it just kind of happened by lots of individual humans doing their things. And this bizarre collective decision was made. I don't know. That's very abstract. Does that make any sense what I'm saying? <laughs> I think the thing that I really like about what you were saying is this idea that this is people making decisions. Um, and that when we describe that history, we often make it sound very simple, like, oh, everybody disagreed. Like, we're just going to go here. And that's not obviously how huge groups of dis people make decisions, right? And so one of the puzzles about all these cities is, is figuring out, well, what did inspire people to come to that decision? Did they have government? Did they mm -hmm. have like a council that met somehow? Did they, um, you know, did they, like you said, did they just say, oh, well, here's a great fork in the river. Like, let's just be at the fork in the river because that's a great place to be, which which is the case with Cahokia, uh, which is at which is on the Mississippi and the Missouri 
split right near Cahokia. So you can see why they put that city there because it was right on the road, basically. Um, but with a place like, um, you know, Chitalhuyuk or, uh, you know, places where it's more of a question, um, yeah, I mean, you have to start thinking about, uh, was there a leader who forced people to work, for example, mm-hmm. or did people have volunteer shifts? <laughs> um, and, uh, and, and what made, what made it worth it, you know, because, um, one of the things that that archaeologists would would ask me when I was asking them questions about the city was they'd say, well, what do you what do you think is the the trade off here? Like at what point when people decide to leave a city as opposed to build a city, um, what what is it that they've lost that doesn't make it worth it for them to put all of that effort into maintaining the city? Because that's the bottom line, right, is a city is a heck of a lot of work. Yeah. Um, it's maintenance, maintenance, maintenance. And yeah. at a place like Chitalhuyuk or a place like Angkor, where you're fighting against nature all the time, um, if things start crumbling and you don't fix them, that can get out of hand really quickly, especially if it's, you know, that's your house. You know, if yeah. your neighbor decides, oh, well, I'm sharing a wall with you but I don't give a crap about maintaining it. You know, eventually your wall is going to fall in. Um, and so, you know, there's cities are, cities are basically made up of the labor that goes into them. Yeah. And so if the laborers are being mistreated, if the laborers are unhappy, um, eventually the city starts to go wrong. And when, uh, when you look at cities that are allegedly lost, um, which really just means that they've been mostly abandoned, um, it's almost always because laborers said, no, it's just not worth it. The work, it's it's not a, there's no payoff here for me. Um, and I don't care if my charismatic leader is telling me to like lift a bunch of bags of dirt and carry them somewhere. I, I'm just not getting anything out of this. Yeah. Um, and eventually I'm going to go back to a different city or I'm going to go, um, you know, back to a village where people appreciate me more. <laughs> Um, so yeah, it's, it's definitely complicated. It's not like everybody gets together and has a kumbaya moment and is like, yay, let's go city. (laughs) But that, I mean, that makes a lot of sense to me that, that a city is, is that labor made visible? You know, again, one of the things when I lived in New York and, you know, New York has a lot of dingy, dirty spots. And I remember thinking, man, this place is so big. It's impossible to keep it all nice. You know, like there just aren't enough people doing the work in the city to like scrub every building down. Um, you go to a, you go to smaller cities. They generally have an easier time of like keeping tidy. You know, even in their That's downtowns. Right. But also that goes to show why it's so unsettling once infrastructure starts to crumble in a city because it, it that is the you know when you when there's potholes on the bridge, it well if that's happening like this whole place is <laughs> it's starting to crumble. Um, la- last thing I just want to say about before we go to break about Katahiyuk that that really struck me about your description is that it really shines a light on how many different ways there are to live, to look at these different cities. I mean, what you described, that almost sounded like uh, where people are sleeping on the roofs and they're building a mound, a growing mound, and they're burying their dead beneath the floorboards. This sounds like it's from Italo Calvino. This sounds like it's from Invisible Cities, is like fantasy of different cities. Uh, it's it's so, there's like a, a romantic, mysterious quality to that description that's really beautiful. But it really yeah, happened. Mean- 
And it really happened. And as you said, it is a clear indication that we don't have to live the way that we do, that there's Mm -hmm. many, many ways to build the environment. There's many ways to interact. And each of these built environments has in its structure the suggestion of of a social relationship. You know, we can kind of we can try um, speculatively to reconstruct what kind of community governance was like in these places based on how they built. Um, and so that is, that's a mystery, but it's also part of the excitement of doing archaeology and, and standing on the sidelines and watching people do archaeology in my case. That is so cool. I mean, I can understand why, why you're so excited to do it. Well, we got to take a really quick, quick break. When we come back, I want to learn more about Cahokia, the uh, uh, lost city right here on, in North America. Uh, but we got to take a quick break. We'll be right back with more Annalee Newitz. Okay, we're back with Annalie Newitz. Uh, let's talk about Cahokia. Tell me about Cahokia. You said on the confluence of the Missouri and the Mississippi rivers. That's right. So it's located uh, near East St. Louis in southern Illinois. Um, and it's it's really right across the Mississippi from, from St. Louis. Um, and the city itself uh, probably started to really heat up around 900 CE. So uh, kind of... What, what we would think of as the Middle Ages in Europe. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, the city eventually became uh, big enough that it had possibly as much as 30,000 people. So that makes it rival uh, European cities at the time, like Paris. So it was quite big. Wow. Um, like like co- so, so, Paris was about that same size. And we're talking 900, yeah. much later than Katahoyuk, but like very early as far as European history goes. Sure. Yeah. Very early in European history. Um, or what we think of as so, European history. Yeah, exactly. What mo- quote unquote modern European history? <laughs> yeah, um, it, these things are very complicated. And so Cahokia, um, that's not the name of the city. Uh, that was um, a name given to it by Europeans when they stumbled across it uh, a couple hundred years ago. And there was a, a tribe living there called the Cahokia. And so Europeans were like, "Great, let's call it Cahokia." And the way that they recognized that there was a city there beyond um, what the the tribe was living in was that Cahokia was built uh, using these vast monumental mounds, which are basically earthen pyramids. So these are roughly the shape of a pyramid um, and with a flat top, and they're made of densely packed earth. And in order to build them... Uh, people would have had to take baskets of earth and carry it from one place to another and smash it down really hard. And the biggest of these mounds is called Monk's Mound. And it's what we think of as sort of downtown Cahokia. And its footprint is the same as the footprint of the Great Pyramid at Giza. So it's a whopping big mound. Wow. Um, And uh, it's it's huge. And then, like I said, it's, it's flat on top. And it also has another um, level that's flat. So it looks like there were sort of two ceremonial um, areas on this this mound. And the mound is next to what's called the Grand Plaza, which is, as advertised, an enormous plaza that uh, hundreds of people would have uh, worked on to grade it so that it's all one level. Uh, and they would have put a nice layer of um, sand on top of it to, to create this vast area where people did things like they had sporting events. Um, North American indigenous uh, folks loved sports. They loved sports in South America too, but 
Uh, it was a it was a big thing. Um, and they had ceremonies there. They had, you know, people probably addressed the city from the top of that mound. So the downtown area um, would be probably recognizable to to a modern city person in the sense that they would say, oh, there's a big building. Uh, there's a big plaza like there's lots of other mounds um, around. Uh, and so the entire city um, is full of mounds, uh, not as big as Monk's Mound, um, but it appears that mounds were a basic part of the architecture of the city. And houses were built from wood. So none of the mm. houses remain, uh, which is a source of great frustration and confusion for Europeans when they first found it, because they were like, well, how can this be a city? Like, there's no houses, you know? Yeah. Um, and because uh, in Europe, of course, medieval cities ha- were made from stone. Um, and so you would have had, um, you know, remains of, of houses uh, that you could see. So um, Cahokia was the kind of center or perhaps the biggest city in what is called the Mississippian culture. And Mississippian culture was just a shared culture. They probably shared some beliefs and some language uh, all along the Mississippi River. Mm. And so throughout the South, um, you'll stumble across towns that are called Mounds or Moundsville or Moundburg or whatever. Um, and those are towns that when Europeans settled there, um, they named them after the fact that they were mounds because they were moving into what had once been an indigenous town or a small indigenous city that had used these mounds. And so that's kind of how we identify the Mississippian culture up and down the Mississippi is that they had this characteristic mound building in their in their downtown areas. They shared some symbolic imagery um, and they also all played a game called Chunky um, and <laughs> that they had these kind of um, uh, these round uh, pucks that they would roll. And so you see these chunky, um, chunky stones all up and down the Mississippi. So that's one way we can kind of recognize that they were sharing culture. Um, Was this a team sport? I I just want to know more about it is a team sport. It's a gambling sport Mm. um, and it's still played today. Uh, The Cherokee um, have an annual uh, chunky competition. If you go on uh, YouTube, you can see um, people demonstrating chunky now. And what you do is one person rolls the chunky stone and another person throws a spear and tries to Um, predict where the chunky stone is going to land. So you try to get your spear to hit exactly where the chunky stone lands, but you're kind of doing it simultaneously Uh. with the stone rolling. And then people bet, you know? So it's a like everybody's sort of standing around trying to decide if you're going to figure it out. And um, there's several figurines uh, that we have from Cahokia of chunky players. And you can see them kind of like kneeling down and they have a very kind of thoughtful expression on their face and they're about to roll the chunky stone and they're wearing like cool earrings and they have like awesome headgear and stuff and they look great. Um, they look very um, sporty and uh, <laughs> so Cahokia style sporty. So, um, so Cahokia was a going concern for several hundred years. Um, many people moved there from all over the Americas. Um, well, not all over the Americas, but all over North America and, um, There were massive festivals there where people would come from all up and down the Mississippi to visit Cahokia. So it was kind of um, a seasonal city. It would have had a much bigger population at certain times of year when they were gathering for festivals. Um, They loved barbecue. There's so many barbecue pits that we found at Cahokia. (laughs) Um, And in fact, one of the most common things to find when you're excavating there is just a pit of half-eaten bones because people had a party <laughs> and they had a big barbecue 
And um, downtown at Monk's Mound, where they probably had the biggest parties, there was this one barbecue pit that they found um, that was still stinky. Like when they finally excavated at the bottom, like it's wow. still had a bad smell. And they found ants, like the the remains of ants that had come and eaten some wow. of the um, stuff before it was burned. They also, but one of my favorite details is, so they're digging this up and they're like, wow, there was this big party. There's all these, you know, remains from barbecue and there's like broken dishes and a human finger bone just thrown in there. You know, somebody just <laughs> while doing barbecue, lost a finger. Maybe, maybe the, the, maybe the, the chunky pit. game, maybe the betting got a little intense at the chunky game. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just saying. It's like, I really want to know the story of that. The one human finger. I, I got to say, this doesn't even sound that different from life in St. Like what do people like in St. Louis? Barbecue, sports, yeah. gambling. I mean, it sounds like that area. I know. Uh, I, I know. That's one of the many things that I love about Cahokia is I feel like even though there's a huge disjunction in the culture, obviously there's you know, colonization happens. Um, and actually, Cahokia had been abandoned long before um, European settlers came. There, there were, The Cahokia tribe was living there, but the people who built that city were long gone. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, But I love the fact that, yeah, there's something about that place, the American bottom. People just, they're there for the barbecue and sports. Um, and so the city uh, was, you know, this incredible achievement. Um, and it's still like... Chitalhoyuk, um, we we're left to wonder why people abandoned it. Yeah. Um, there's no uh they didn't leave uh written records that we can find. Um, and like they may have been using um textiles for writing, or they may have, we we just don't know. There's so we don't have any sort of story that says like, and then oh, we left. Um, and there was no big war, there was no Flood for a while, yeah. people believed there had been a flood, but then uh, geologists did some pretty, um, uh, pretty thorough work and said, "No, there's no big flood." Um, and and so something happened. Something happened in that city, and we know uh, that the city did have really strong centralized planning for a while. Uh, everything was on a grid. All the houses were lined up very neatly. There were, um, you know, mounds in regular places that had poles on top. The poles may have been decorative. They may have been for directions, almost like a street sign. Um, And then there's this moment in the city's history where suddenly people stop building on a grid. They stop using that big um, mound downtown. They start using that mound area as a trash pit and they start building um, more neighborhood like um, houses Mm -hmm. like in little courtyards. And um, so something happened maybe in the city, some big shift in politics. Something in government, a different form of government or something like mm -hmm. that. Yeah. Some, uh, I talk about it in the book as being a social movement. Um, Some archeologists call it a revival. Um, We know that, that there were uh, among indigenous cultures, there were these kinds of revival movements where lots of people would start to follow one particular shamanistic figure or group uh, and move to a new place. Um, but it seems like people just at a certain point were like, yeah, we're kind of done with this. We're just going to go back to, you know, a different kind of life. Um, and so a lot of the people who live there probably became what are now the Siouan tribes. Um, and, uh, just, they just said, screw it. We're not going back. Um, we're (laughs) we're done with the mounds. (laughs) Uh, let me ask when, when, I mean, first of all, few hundred years, again, that's the same scale as New York city or mm-hmm. any American city today mm-hmm. that that was around right. for. 
Um, you know, that that's the same amount of time from today back to Peter Stuyvesant from New York. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, let me ask, was there agriculture? Uh, was this city based on agri- agriculture like the other ones that we're talking about? It was. Um, it was very much an agricultural society. And we know that they had huge farms all over the uplands, um, some of which would have been relatively distant from the city. Um, and that people were um, traveling from the city to manage farmland. It's not clear how ownership was handled. Was the farmland kind of collectively owned? Mm-hmm. Um, did people have family plots? Um, these are like big questions for archaeologists. Uh, one of the things, but we do know that they did have these massive farms. So whoever owned them, the food from them was getting to the city. Uh, and one of the things that's super interesting is that um, certainly toward the end of the city's life, people were eating a lot of corn. Uh, you know, corn was a big uh, South American and, and Central American staple, uh, but it didn't reach North America until a little bit later. And so they were eating a ton of crops that have rewilded. So they domesticated a mm. marsh elder and a, something called erect knotweed um, and several other plants that now we no longer farm and no longer eat. But they were eating these grains and these um, seeds. And um, there are uh, ar- archaeologists in the States now who are um, basically they do botany archaeology and they look for caches like um, that people have left behind of these uh, seeds and grains that are no longer eaten. Um, and sometimes they find them like people would you know, bury a bunch of erect knotweed seeds um, in the floor to eat later. And then for whatever reason, they'd forget about them or they'd leave. Yeah. Um, and then archaeologists find them and they're like, dude, they were eating these knotweed seeds. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, these um, these plants are called lost crops. And uh, there's a whole bunch of people now who are studying these lost crops and looking at them as possible um, new crops, like things that we could domesticate again huh. uh, because they have great um, nutritional um, you know, they have nutritional value and they're also tasty and why not have a variety? So the story of Cahokia is so at odds again with the normal white American cultural historical conception of, you know, the indigenous people who were on this continent before the arrival of Europeans. Like you're talking a city with thousands of uh, tens of thousands of people that existed for hundreds of years centrally organized in some way or organized in some way to the extent that they were building on a grid system. Oh yeah. No, it's centrally organized for sure. With, yeah. with agriculture, wide scale agriculture to feed a city. I mean, uh, it, it's, it's stunning how much this is the opposite of what, you know, I was taught in school or what I saw on TV growing up. Uh, why do you think that is like, why, why did the story not, be more widely told. You know, this is a pattern you see in a lot of cities that get referred to as lost cities. Um, These are places that are often um, talked about by European settlers um, and European settlers will pretend that they have discovered them. Uh, This (laughs) happened at Angkor. This happened at Cahokia. Um, And, you know, it doesn't fit with a tidy tale of European settlement in the United States. The the sort of the myth is that this was a virgin land and, you know, there there were a few people here, but they hadn't done anything very fancy. And so we were going to come in and create our, our nifty civilization. And 
Actually, um, some of the first uh, Europeans to see Cahokia speculated that maybe it was that the people who built the pyramids in ancient Egypt had somehow come over here and built them because it couldn't (laughs) possibly be that indigenous people had built such an incredible metropolis. Um, So I think, you know, it's part of Western mythology about how colonialism works, right? You know, it's always the colonizing power always wants to imagine that, you know, it's bringing some kind of new fancy thing to the place that it's that it's crushing under its boot um, and doesn't want to acknowledge that that, in fact, you know, civilization to rival European civilization has existed in the Americas, you know, for a very long time, thousands of years, you know, much, much older than than Cahokia. I mean, the thing that's interesting about Cahokia is that the people building Cahokia, building these massive um, mounds, they were basing that architecture on even more ancient architecture. Mm. There were mound builders in the United in the in the area of the United States uh, three thousand years ago. Wow. There's um an, there's amazing um, earthworks in uh, Louisiana that are um, these incredible mounds and um, you know spiral shapes and all kinds of um, well earthworks where where people have clearly used the earth to create monumental architecture um, often along rivers and so the people who made Cahokia were like they were looking back to their own distant history and they were like how can we be as cool as those guys over at Watson Break in in Louisiana of course they wouldn't have called it Louisiana but you know what i mean and so they were like okay we're going to build a mound even bigger even cooler um and they did and so i think it's you know it's really the job now of you know historians and teachers who are bringing you know history to a new generation of students to say hey Actually, civilization in the Americas is thousands of years old. Here's what civilization looked like. And then there were these Johnny-come-latelys, these European settlers who kind of came in and laid claim to a bunch of stuff through pretty nefarious means and a lot of treaty breaking. Um, and that's where we are now. Yeah. So I think we're in kind of a, a renaissance of, um, you know, really learning about this stuff. And have we have an opportunity now to really appreciate uh, the sophistication of civilizations in the Americas. Um, but yeah, it is, it's, you know, it's one of those, uh, things where the colonizers come in and don't want to admit that anybody else has any claim to the space. Well, what stuns me is that the colonizers came in and they saw the city and they were like, wow, Mm -hmm. there's a great big city here. Like, you know, I read, had a big impact on me. Charles C. Mann's book, 1491, a number of years ago, which I think is, where a lot of people learned about this for the first time. Um, and, you know, that has the narrative of a lot of European settlers came. And by the time they got here, the plague that the earliest explorers brought had already wiped out so many people. So they got here and they saw literally a tenth of the people who lived here initially. And they were like, where is everybody? And that's sort of like their own ignorance, you know, of mm-hmm. of not realizing that there were large civilizations here. But this isn't that. This is people mm-hmm. going to Cahokia saying, wow, there's a big fucking city here. Who built this city? And then just didn't tell that story. Like, yeah, well, they did tell the story. And the story was it was probably the people who right. built the Egyptian pyramids. It right. had to be some other people. Um, and it's funny because, you know, it's when I tell that story, it's like, oh, it was these 17th century settlers and they were so dumb. And, you know, but we still see this exact same story today 
when um, people talk about ancient aliens, you know, building things mm-hmm. in South America, you know, it's the same idea. It's like it can't be the indigenous people. Right. It must be aliens. Um, and that's just a that that story, the the story of aliens is a direct inheritor of that story about how people from ancient Egypt came over and built these um, earthen mounds. Um, it's just European settlers not wanting to wow. allow the idea that the indigenous people could build their own stuff. Well, <laughs> I thought ancient aliens was wrong and stupid, but I'm very happy to know it's also racist. I have another reason to not yes. watch that show. <laughs> <laughs> Stupid, misguided, and now with racism. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, it just stuns me how little this story is is told at all. I mean, like, if you think about movies, for example, we've got movies about ancient Greece. Greece. We've got movies about ancient Rome. We've got movies about mm-hmm. ancient, you know, uh, uh, Jerusalem. Uh, I bet you could find, I have a picture in my head of what Mesopotamia looked like. You know, I, I can picture it. But... What these two cities that you, you know, Katahalyuk and, and uh, more specifically Cahokia look like, I have no, I can't picture them. There's never been anything, any work of fiction set there. I mean, maybe somebody has, but not one that has, you know, reached the public consciousness, right? And uh, that really, I mean, it, it there... That's the sense in which they're still lost, right? Like people don't mm-hmm. live in Pompeii anymore either, but I know the story of Pompeii a little bit better. I mean, I'd love for you to tell me more about it, but uh, <laughs> yeah. in the in the consciousness of humanity, these are places that are are neglected as well in a in a really stunning way. Yeah, I mean, I think um, there's a couple things there. One is that, yes, part of what makes a city lost is not that it's actually physically lost, but that its culture and tradition are ignored or sidelined or marginalized or just, you know, suppressed completely. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing about that, though, is when you say, you know, these are stories that are lost to humanity, you always have to ask, well, which humanity? Yes. Because, you know, indigenous folks are fully clear on the fact that Cahokia is really important um, and that there was a great city there. Um, There's lots of other um, cities like that, like in Chaco Canyon, which is kind of contemporaneous uh, with um, Cahokia, which is where ancient Puebloan culture was thriving. And they had these incredible, um, basically castles and uh, villages. And it was this very urbanized area Um, That was also abandoned for reasons that we understand a little bit better. Um, And it's just it's just the European story. Like you said, it's what white people are teaching each other. It's what, um, you know, white leaders are mandating that we teach in school. Yeah. Um, And I think, you know, there's a little bit of that that's changing, especially right now. We're having a a moment of of thinking about these things. Um, There's a fantastic fantasy writer, uh, Rebecca Roanhorse, who's indigenous and African-American, and she's working on a trilogy. Um, the first one has just come out. It's called Black Sun, and it's set in this world. And um, one of the books is going to deal with Cahokia. Cool. Um, and she's she's great, and she loves this history. And, you know, she's really steeped in it. And I think, um, you know, again, it's, you know, if you look to um, people who aren't necessarily part of the dominant culture. Yes. They, they don't think these cities are lost. Yeah. This is part of their history. Um, and it's the same thing, uh, with Angkor, um, in Cambodia where, you know, Europeans claim to have discovered it in the 19th century 
And, you know, the Khmer people living in Cambodia and elsewhere in Southeast Asia are like, uh, yeah, dude, we've been making pilgrimages to the city the whole time. <laughs> like, we knew it was here. There were monks living there when you arrived. So I don't think it was lost. Um, so it's it's really um, one, of, one of the parts of this book that was really interesting for me was kind of excavating those stories, like making sure that I was... Um, showing the story of continuity with these cities, showing that they weren't lost um, yeah. for the people that live there. Uh, they weren't lost for the cultures of people around those cities. Um, they were only lost in the eyes mostly of uh, settlers yeah. and of Westerners. Yeah, I want to be clear. I'm not like, you know, saying that the dominant Western white culture is like the only one that's there, but the power that sure. it has in shaping what most mm-hmm. people think is so large and... Uh, you know, again, that's the one that I grew up with. Right. And yeah. so to me, the conflicts there are like very apparent and like the the impoverishment of it, like the impoverishment of that story. You know, a common joke about America versus Europe is, oh, we don't have any history here. You know, you go to and it's true. Like when you, you know, I visited. Yeah. You know, one of the things I uh, I visited Japan a number of years ago is my first time to Asia. And I was like oh my gosh, this is like one civilization that's been in this one spot for thousands of years. And so there's just old shit all over the place or, or re, a lot of times it's rebuilt <laughs> yeah. old shit. But they're like, yeah. okay, this temple has been here for 2000 years. It's had the same name. It was built by this emperor. And I'm like, oh my God, I didn't grow up with this, right? Except that the place I grew up with did have that history. Um, mm-hmm. I, I said this to Anton Troyer, who uh, we had on a couple of weeks ago, that you know I grew up on Long Island and so many of the places... It's all it's all uh, Native American place names um, mm-hmm. and and Native American civilizations that were <laughs> that, you know, th- th- they are there, but we simply don't teach them. We don't. Yeah. You know how many people who live in the St. Louis area know that there is an incredible, you know, thousand year old uh, ruin right outside. Like they don't need to go to fucking Europe and, and see Stonehenge. <laughs> it's in their backyard. I would wager yeah. not many know. No, it's absolutely true. And in the case of Cahokia, um, it's now a state park, uh, but that is very recent. Uh, It was really only in the 1980s that they were able to turn it into a state park. And uh, there was a suburb built on top of what is now, if if you visit, this beautiful park with all of the mounds. But people built houses on those mounds. They, they, you know, plowed under all of this valuable stuff in that city because they just wow. didn't recognize it for what it was. There was actually right next to Monk's Mound, which now today is, of course, this beautifully maintained monument. Uh, there was a movie theater called Mounds Drive-In, um, <laughs> you know, so that's that's a that's such a, a white settler moment. It like we came in. Hey, we paid homage to your culture. We built Mounds Drive-In. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, so the, the state of, of Illinois, um, when they uh, turned it into uh, a park, they were able to get money to buy back the land. Um, and so the people who were living there, it was a, a suburb, um, all of their property was bought from them. And so um, now all those houses have been cleared. So, the, like I said, it's a land, it's kind of a, an early land back uh, cool. moment. Um, and, uh, and so that's, again, like I said, it's only very recently that we're appreciating this stuff and, and what we need to be doing, what teachers need to be doing, hopefully is 
um, learning about this stuff and teaching it in school. And I do know that kids in the St. Louis area often go visit it. And I've gotten, because I've written about Cahokia a lot, and I always get emails from people who are like, holy shit, I visited when I was a kid, but nobody told me it was this cool. I didn't know what it was. I just thought it was a bunch of boring stuff. It was like, they didn't tell you about like the parties and well, the barbecue. Well, you also could have been a dumb kid who was like, well, uh, I got to look up for my Game Boy for this. Like what's going on? Because that's what I would have. That's what I would have done. There's uh, so sure. many wonderful historical things I went to that were completely lost on me because I was being a brat about it. I was like, Duh, I don't want to read the plaque. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's why we need a huge, uh, like, you know, multi-million dollar franchise devoted to Cahokia yeah. and Mississippian culture and like retelling the stories of some of the Mississippian heroes, um, you know, and like we need like a chunky sports movie like that'd be awesome. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, a video game. Like, why don't we why don't we get like a, a video game where like people are, you know, running around in the Mississippian era and like. <laughs> giant mounds and cool shit. So <laughs> I think it could happen. Um, I look forward to that happening a lot more. Uh, well, uh, so do I, by the way. Um, I think that would be a great HBO series about people living in Cahokia. Right? Every episode, you know, there's like a chunky gambling plot line. Someone loses their finger. I don't want to... <laughs> I'm, I'm speculating about the finger. Yeah. I, 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 there's even a little... There's a little human sacrifice you can throw in there too. Good and, shit. Good yeah. shit. Um, okay, uh, let's talk for a little while longer. We spent uh, almost an hour talking about two of the four cities, and I think that's fine. We want to leave something to the imagination that maybe people are going to run out and buy the book, but please tease for us. Just talk a little bit about Angkor Wat and, and Pompeii and why those cities are so cool and, and why you wrote about them. Sure. So uh, Pompeii, I partly picked because it was a bit of a gimme. Um, you know, we all know why people abandoned Pompeii. Yeah. Um, there was this massive eruption, Mount Vesuvius, um, and it buried Pompeii and a bunch of other nearby cities uh, under many, many feet of broiling hot ash. So that was city was lost uh, and it's been excavated pretty systematically for about two, three hundred years. So we've got a lot of the city now unburied. Um what I thought was interesting about Pompeii, and this is my one tease, is that the myth is that everyone perished at Pompeii. The reality is um, only about a tenth of the population perished. Wow. Most people, the vast majority of people, um, evacuated because there had been, there were earthquakes. Uh, the mountain was erupting for a while before mm -hmm. it really released the deadly gas. So. Part of the story in my book is about what happened to the people who evacuated and mm. how the Roman government um, dealt with all of these refugees. Um, they actually dealt with them quite well. And it, it's an interesting story. And um, and Pompeii was a really important Roman vacation town. So also there's a lot of partying in that part of the book, too. <laughs> um, so uh, so that that's a really interesting story. Um, I, I, and then imagine if you if you're on vacation, you're having a great time, you're living it up. At the Pompeian, uh, you know, tiki bar. And then yep. what the fuck? Uh, a volcano? And you mm -hmm. get buried under many feet of broiling hot ash? That's a terrible vacation. Worst vacation. Um, I have to say, probably the people who were vacationing were among the first to evacuate. Right? Okay, they okay. would have they would have noticed, like, hey, earthquakes, not that fun. Why don't we just take the boat back to Rome, honey? It yeah, was the people saying, I'm not leaving my house. My mother's yeah, buried like the under mayor. the floorboards. 
Yeah. The mayor did not leave, which I think is very <laughs> honorable. Um, yeah. So and a lot of slaves uh, were left behind and, and things like that. Um, so uh, so that was that. But that's it's a super interesting story. And I have I have lots of great uh, tales of of drinking, basically, uh, at, at Pompeii. And then um, Angkor, uh, which is the huge city ba- built around Angkor Wat, which is the famous temple, um, is uh, it's just a marvel. I mean, this is a city that was in Southeast Asia uh, in a place where um, most uh, Westerners would consider to be incredibly hard to build a city. You know, it's it's buffeted by uh, incredible monsoons every year. Um, it's, you know, surrounded by this fast-growing jungle. Um, and a million people lived there. It was one of the biggest cities in the world. A million uh, people a, lived there? Isn't that insane? In what year? This is, this is about a thousand years ago. Wow. Um, so, you know, uh, actually, uh, Angkor is kind of contemporaneous with um, Cahokia. Okay. Uh, and they're both tropical cities. They're both farm cities. Um, a big part of uh, Angkor's wealth came from its outlying farms. Um, and that was because they innovated this incredible system of reservoirs and canals to maintain uh, their farms even during the dry months. Um, and... It was just, you know, it was the center of everything in Southeast Asia. You know, the Khmer Empire was at various points enormous. Um, and if you went to Angkor, uh, again, it was a party town. There was a lot of um, art, a lot of dancing, a lot of cool stuff. Um, and its demise is um, uh, a whole story in itself and also a myth. It never really did collapse. Mm. And that's... Uh, part of this um, kind of Western myth that we've been talking about, about how these cities are lost. Um, and so part of what's intriguing about Angkor um, is what it is that we think of when we talk about a city collapsing. What does that really mean? Yeah. Um, and also, uh, you know, what was it what was it like for the vast majority of people in the city? We hear a lot about the kings. We hear a lot about the fancy people who lived in the, you know, um, in the temple enclosures, but uh, the ordinary people who were the ones building all the shit in the city um, had pretty interesting lives. And so that's kind of what I try to look at is where, where they lived, what they did, um, what it was like to just be a regular person um, yeah. in, in this incredible city. And uh, so, uh, and also Angkor is a big lesson in infrastructure. There's like so much stuff with like how leaders of the city mistreated the infrastructure, mm-hmm. shall we say. <laughs> um, and so if you're living in a city now where the infrastructure is decaying and you're wondering what the hell's going to happen. Yeah, I live that, in Los Angeles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, LA is actually a great analog for Angkor. In oh, no. <laughs> yeah, it really is. And um, and it, it really does boil down to a lot of Angkor's problems. The, the myth of Angkor is that there were wars and there were all this crazy stuff. No, it was really about maintaining the canals. And, wow. you know, once you stop maintaining the canals, ordinary people are screwed and, yeah. and ordinary people are like the vast majority of your population. So, um, so please maintain public infrastructure. Yeah. That's- and don't <laughs> cut the fucking bus service like they're doing. They're oh. cutting bus service here right now. And it's like in the pandemic, so upsetting in the pandemic, they're cutting bus service. Unbelievable. Like, so now people are packed in even more. People are waiting in the hot sun under the, this, this seems, sorry, I'm getting on, on a different, uh, different angry tangent. Uh, but so, something that maybe let's end on this note, uh, yeah. because 
you talked about how there's a Western myth of Angkor Wat as being more lost than it was. And Mm -hmm. what that makes me think of is that, well, hold on. I was saying that, you know, Western Europeans never tell these stories, but sometimes they do. But when they do, they're, they're mythologized. Like I'm even thinking about how, you know, the, the European explorers were like searching for the lost cities of gold, right at the time that they were exploring and then when it served us we stopped telling that story and just said oh this is empty the whole time mm-hmm. but uh there's like a uh you know a romanticization and sort of fantasy version of these cities created in in the mind of of you know western colonizers when really they were just more cities um and they're i don't know that's an interesting Philip. Yeah, I want I, I would take this back to something you said at the very beginning, which is that um, cities kind of feel like they are um, concrete pieces of civilization. I mean, sometimes literally made of concrete um, that, that cities kind of represent their civilization. And so I think part of the myth of the lost city is that just because we found a city that was abandoned, like Angkor, um, or like Cahokia, that means that the entire civilization that made the city mm-hmm. is gone. Um, and that's never the case. People do abandon cities. I mean, cities fall apart. This is just part of reality. Um, but they take their culture with them when they leave. And the people who left Angkor went down to Phnom Penh in the south, um, which is now, of course, the capital, and um, continued their culture. Um, a lot of the culture developed at Angkor is still very much alive and well in Southeast Asia. Um, Theravada Buddhism, which kind of originates in the Khmer Empire, is still practiced by many Cambodians. Um, and same thing with Cahokia. You know, the people of Cahokia became Suans. They are part of, you know, they're the ancestors of many, many tribes uh, in, in North yeah. America. Um, and so these cultures don't die. Um, the cities kind of fall apart. But civilization continues and it and it changes and it mutates to suit new times and new environments. But um, one of the the messages of this book is really that um, just because a city is abandoned doesn't mean it's lost. It just means yeah. that it's changed and that we're changing and our cities have to change, too. And that's that's a lesson we can take today. I mean, we're still sometimes committing that same error. I'm thinking about. You know, a couple of years ago when there was so much news about Detroit and, you know, the hollowing out of Detroit and you had, you know, urban explorers and photographers and homesteaders and, oh, let's, oh, Detroit's abandoned. Let's go take photos and like start urban farms and shit. And the people of Detroit were like, no, we still live here, assholes. Mm-hmm. Like, what are you talking about? Yeah, it's a little, you know, things are a little rough, but like it's still, we live here still or we live just outside or, you know. That this is not, uh, it's it's not your ruin to come play in. Uh, and yeah, get out of here, colonizers. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I don't know. Are there other lessons that you think we can take from uh, studying this? Uh, or, or are there new ways that you see the cities that you live in or visit today as a result of this? I mean, definitely it's changed uh, my view of cities. And I think that's because looking at, at these four cities that did have a kind of lifespan where they they rose and, and were eventually mostly abandoned um, has really highlighted for me that the thing that is the most destructive to city life, which is to say most destructive to community, because after all, cities are just communities, 
um, is a combination of political instability and environmental challenges. Mm. And those challenges could be like modern day climate change. Uh, In the case of these more ancient cities, it usually took the form of floods and droughts, which would have affected their uh, agriculture. Um, And these are things that a good government, uh, a stable government is able to handle. Um, They're able to stockpile food. They're able to help people share food um, or change agricultural practices as they did at Chitalhoyuk. Um, an unstable government just says, screw it. Let the people deal with it. Oh, are their bridges falling apart? Whatever. I don't care. My palace is fine. Actually, you know what? I'm going to go fuck off down to Phnom Penh now. So I don't even need to be in Angkor anymore. Um, so, which is actually what happened. Uh, and I, I think that's something we really need to be considering as urbanites, as people who love cities is that city government Um, And by extension, you know, state governments and and even the federal government are really, really important to the lives of cities and that cities can survive crazy stuff. We can survive pandemics. We can survive fire and flood. But we need some kind of social contract between the people in the city. And that starts with how you treat workers, Um, because workers are the ones who are repairing the city and building the houses Um, And when an unstable government starts treating its workers like garbage, I don't know if this story sounds familiar to you. Mm -hmm. um, That is what precipitates urban abandonment. Mm. Um, And so uh, it's really made me think a lot about just basic stuff like, I don't know, um, minimum wage um, or health care for agricultural workers. Um, These are all things that if we can get our get it together um, that it will really help our cities uh, remain healthy. Yeah. Well, the book is called Four Lost Cities. Thank you so much for coming on to talk to us about it, Annalie. This has been incredibly awesome. Yeah, it's been delightful. Thanks for having me. Well, thank you once again to Annalie for coming on the show. The book, once again, is called Four Lost Cities, A Secret History of the Urban Age. I hope you check it out. Thank you so much for listening to the show this week. I want to thank our producers, Kimmy Lucas and Sam Roudman, our engineer, Andrew Carson, Andrew WK for our theme song, the fine folks at Falcon Northwest for building me the incredible gaming PC that I recorded this very episode on. You can find me wherever you get your social media at Adam Conover. If you want to make a suggestion, Or if you want to just say some nice words about the podcast, well, hey, first of all, leave us a rating or review wherever you subscribe. But you can also send an email to factually at adamconover.net. And uh, hey, I think that's about it. I want to thank you all for listening. We'll see you next week on Factually. Emmy Award-winning John Mulaney presents Everybody's in L.A., a special run of six live episodes created by and starring Mulaney that'll stream live on Netflix during the Netflix is a Joke Fest. The comically unconventional show will feature special guests where John Mulaney explores the city of Los Angeles during a week when every funny person is in it. Watch John Mulaney presents Everybody's in L.A., debuting May 3rd live at 7 p.m. Pacific time, only on Netflix.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.